0: Good morning.
1: I, uh, I saw a meme that was kind of floating around the, the Twitter sphere recently. And this is what it said. It, well, it had a picture of someone who had their face sort of like in their hands. They looked so distressed, so discouraged, almost like hungover. And it said, that space between Christmas and New Year's, when you don't know what day it is, who you are, or what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> And I was like, I feel like that's just the perfect summary of like what this weird week is, especially with uh, having New Year's Day on a Wednesday. I felt like all of Chicago was just so disoriented going back on Thursday. Like, is this a Monday? Is this a Friday? It's just that kind of like weird, like haze and fog that seems to surround the the post-holiday chaos. I remember so many times uh, where I've come back from that that Christmas break, sort of come out of the, the post-holiday chaos. And it just feels like there's this hazy sense of like, I'm not fully rested, even though my body knows that we've been on a break and have been out of the, the normal routine. I'm just feeling kind of like sluggish and half-hearted and unmotivated when I go back to school or work. I'm feeling kind of like peopled out from having a lot of social interaction, going back home and trying to visit everyone. Uh, but I'm not necessarily feeling very connected. Again, it's like hazy on time. I'm still writing 19 on everything, and I have to scratch it out and be like, oh yeah, it's 2020. And there's just an overall sense of like, it's just a hazy sense of satisfaction. Like the holiday season kind of like came and went really fast, and I had all of these expectations for how I would feel and the people that I would get to see and how rested I would be on the other end of it. And it just really wasn't as satisfying as I hoped it would be. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and you kind of feel like you're in that haze, too. You kind of relate with that. I think that while we feel it maybe most acutely after, after seasons like the holidays that are just kind of crazy and chaotic, I think if most of us were honest, this, this kind of like low-grade background haze just sort of hangs over most of our lives, just kind of hangs over most of our daily life the people that we spend time with and and the activities that we do. It's, it's sort of like that endless to-do list at home and at school and work where you're feeling exhausted at the end of the day, you've been producing so much, and yet you don't actually feel accomplished, or you don't actually feel like you're getting up the next day and you're on top of it. Maybe it's relationships, either friendships or in your marriage or with your family, where you feel like they're they're steady, which is good, but... They're starting to feel kind of stagnant, and there's sort of an an underlying guilt of just like, I just feel like I'm too busy, and I don't have enough bandwidth to give all to this that I want, and the relationship feels close, but just sort of like hazy, and you feel sort of checked out, and we try and pray, we try to read our Bible, we try to uh, talk to God and to, to connect with other people and go to church. But there's sort of a fog of distraction when we're at church or when we open the scriptures. There's just sort of this haze when we're praying where, yeah, we, we, we feel like we're not really getting through to God and God's not really getting through to us. We can't seem to kind of get out of this sense of half heartedness in our prayers or in our worship. And then to make matters worse, when we try and find that spark of escape, and we try and find that like spark of energy to just kind of like clear the haze by, you know, watching a, a show on Netflix or whether it's watching porn or whether it's just scrolling through our Twitter feed mindlessly for hours on end. It doesn't actually do for us what we thought it would do. And we just end up feeling more gross and more groggy and cynical than we did when we started. So this, this Sunday marks the beginning of the season of epiphany which is a season when we celebrate the appearing of the Son of God as God with us. This beacon of light that's just cutting through the haze of our ordinary daily life. During Epiphany, we, we look specifically at several key scenes in the life of Jesus that are recorded in the New Testament for us. And in Jesus' baptism, in his turning water into wine, in Jesus' calling of the disciples, in his Sermon on the Mount, and in his transfiguration, his glory And the heart of his Father is revealed for us. And and as, as his life progresses and as the readings progress, it's like this unveiling of his glory and of the Father's heart just starts to shine brighter and brighter to become more and more intense. And the more intense it comes, the deeper he wants to draw us. The more intense he wants our following after him to be. He wants us to lean in closer the more his glory is revealed and his true identity shines forth. So each of these epiphany moments, starting with the, the story or the scene that we're going to look at this morning, they're invitations to trust what we see and to come closer. They're intended to draw us out of this like foggy haze of commitment, of hazy desires and a hazy sense of purpose, into the full and eternal kind of life that we are created for. A life that's intimately connected to God's presence and to God's power. So please... Turn with me to Matthew 2 in your
0: Bibles or in your bulletins. Let's look together at how the light of Christ cuts through our haze. Starting in verse 1. Now
1: after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So Matthew starts this scene around two years after Jesus' birth. He starts it in the city of Bethlehem, which is sort of a small town on the margins of the royal city of Jerusalem. And it may not have been, you know, one of the most exciting towns but it would, have, it would have sparked something in the Jewish imagination uh, for the Jewish readers who were, who were reading Matthew's account because Bethlehem was the hometown of the superstar King David. And according to ancient Jewish prophecy, there was this new and better David who was going to be born in Bethlehem who would be raised up to lead and deliver God's people. And Deacon Susan talked about that uh, last, last week. If you didn't hear that sermon, i encourage you to go back and listen to it. So Matthew he he sets the scene for us. And behold, he calls in from the wing these wise men from the east that came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So these wise men from the east, they're probably Gentiles. We don't know exactly where they're from, but they're probably from, from Babylon, from the Babylonia area. And so they would have been cultural outsiders in the Jewish capital city of Jerusalem. They would have not really have had their barons necessarily. People might have looked at them when they walked, walked past. And although we have sort of like three wise men in particular in our minds from the nativity scenes and the Christmas cards, uh, we actually, the text doesn't say, we have no idea how many wise men and maybe wise women there were with them. And knowing that they had to travel uh, like, 40 days, it was about 800 miles if they're coming from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem, and they're bringing precious cargo with them. There was probably a whole entourage of assistants and security guards with them to help protect them. Since it was sort of a, they had to pass through some sketchy and, and some rough terrain. And wise men. It's, it's hard to explain. It's a hard word to sort of translate for our context. It's kind of this, if I had to describe it, it's like this ambiguous Sort of like catch-all term for diplomatic people who, if you looked at their bookshelf, they would have had almost every kind of religious text, but they weren't necessarily committed to any one of them. They were scholars. They were students. They studied religious texts. They dabbled in magic, and and they they pursued uh, seeking signs. So they would also study stars and dreams. They're this weird like. Combination of scholar and sign reader. They lived in this, this gray world of like hazy beliefs, hazy morals, hazy commitments that any good Jewish or Christian reader of Matthew's account would have tried to stay totally away from. It was just sort of this, this weird, liminal, morally questionable space. They're not the kind of people that a writer would name drop in their account to add a sense of credibility. So it's actually kind of amazing that Matthew mentions them. He brings them in from the wing into his story. And there's no, like like Susan said, there's no like QI role. There's no uh, sense of disapproval. He just kind of plainly mentions them, even though it would have been off-putting to his readers. So like many different pieces of Jesus' story that his biographers include in their accounts, I think that the only reasonable explanation for why they're in this story, for why Matthew mentions them, is because they were actually there. Because it actually happened. And Matthew's just sharing the tradition that he received. God actually came and cut through the fog of their hazy existence. And in a way that was tangible but supernatural, he, he drew them to himself. So from their stargazing... They see and they interpret a sign. Uh, they interpret that it's the sign of, of a newborn king of the Jews. And so it makes sense that even though uh, Matthew starts by saying Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it makes sense that they would come to Jerusalem, that they would go to the royal palace, since that's the royal city. Look with me at, at verse 3. Yet, yeah, when Herod, the king of the Jews, we might add, heard this, he was deeply troubled, and all Jerusalem, with him there's a truth here that we see i think we've probably felt it in our own life of discipleship we've bumped up against it and that's that whenever the light of christ invades our haze the forces of darkness always strike back whenever the light of christ comes to invade our haze there are forces of darkness inside us and outside of us that almost always strike back and the brighter the light shines the more intense the darkness of the resistance becomes. I think this is one reason why we see so much more demonic and supernatural warfare in the New Testament. The presence of God has entered creation in a new way. And all the evil inside of us and outside of us just comes out of the woodwork. Isn't it? It's really interesting, I think, how Matthew writes this. He's already mentioned that these are in the days of King Herod, to sort of place it for us chronologically, but he mentions that he's king again. He says, but when Herod, the king heard that the wise men came looking for the newborn king of the Jews, he was deeply troubled. The birth of Jesus as the true king of the Jews, even though this is he's still only a child at this point, but it shakes Herod along with the rest of Jerusalem's corrupt political and religious leaders. It shakes them to their core. When the real king of this world shows up, all the false kings and all the false tyrants who have been reigning in his place, they get nervous. When the real king shows up, all the false kings, all the bullies,
0: get nervous. Look with me at verses 4 and 8. In assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the
1: people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him." From the historical records that we have of Herod's leadership, we know that he was a non-Israelite who was appointed by the Roman Empire to kind of be this, like, puppet king in Jerusalem. And he was appointed as king of the Jews, but he wasn't a Jew, so he kind of had this weird imposter syndrome. And his rule and leadership, by, by all accounts, was marked by paranoia, it was marked by insecurity, and it was marked by a ruthless quest to consolidate power to the point that he was even willing to kill his mother, his sons, and one of his wives, just to make sure he could keep his office, just out of a paranoid fear that they might stage a coup on him or it would get passed off to someone else. He was also incredibly manipulative, and we kind of see that in this text. He would harshly oppress the Jewish people, and then he would turn around and do really nice things, like restore their their temple, which had been destroyed, and build them centers of entertainment, And markets to kind of gaslight them into submission, into believing that it wasn't really that bad. Like we see, we see this manipulation in verse 8 when he tells the wise men to let him know when they find Jesus that they can bring word to him and he may also come and worship him. Herod's, he's got this like, this nice, kind, deceptive front, but then underneath is this murderous impulse. He's got this nice, kind, deceptive front. There's a murderous impulse underneath. Any threat to his identity, any threat to his, his desire to consolidate power or control, it's, it's ultimately met with violence. And we see that later in the story. So of course, he doesn't actually want to worship Jesus. He wants to extinguish
0: the light as it's shining into the haze. There are,
1: there are dark and there are Herod-like forces inside of us and outside of us, that are personal, they're cultural, they're spiritual, and they want to keep us from getting to Jesus. There are Herod-like forces inside of us and outside of us that actually want to keep you and I from getting to Jesus, from getting close to Christ as he reaches into our lives. There are personal forces of darkness. Well, Herod's obviously a very... Extreme example, since most of us probably haven't killed members of our own family to to keep our office, I think that if we were maybe even ruthlessly honest with ourselves, we would see that we have some maybe some herod like traits that we we display, maybe that we don't see about ourselves, but if we were to ask other people around us to be ruthlessly honest, they would see them too maybe Maybe it's the fact that we we're just so caught up in protecting our own sense of identity, or when we feel someone pushing against our will, we can snap back to try and keep our own sense of control over our lives. Maybe it's that there are insecurities and anxieties that lie underneath the surface, that when we are pushed, we can lash out, and those insecurities, those anxieties, they actually keep us from leading and connecting with people in healthy ways. They block our ability to lead and connect. I think there's also a little bit of this this kind of deceptive front that can be hidden from us, but the Lord sees it. And that's that while we might say externally that we worship Jesus, we're actually not willing to obey him. That while we say we worship Jesus, while we might even say that we want Jesus to come to us and to comfort us, we're not willing to allow Jesus to challenge us. We're not allowed, Jesus isn't allowed to challenge our worldview. So there's personal forces of darkness. There's also cultural forces of darkness. The reality is that the Roman Empire was just a cruel and dark place to be. The fact that rulers like Herod were willing and able to do crooked things to stay in power and that they got away with it because it was culturally acceptable, that's a force of cultural darkness and these these kinds of forces they they can play on our our desires and they play on our fears and so it makes it hard for us to resist them because it just feels so much easier to go along with them it feels so much easier to just go along with them especially when we're benefiting from the privileges of them and this can express itself on macro levels of systemic systems of injustices and unjust law This kind of, this cultural force of darkness that can also express itself on a very local level of maybe at work, there's just a culture of gossip. There's just a culture of kind of like being nice to people, but then every false move they make, you joke about them behind their back as this act of bonding, pure bonding. That's a cultural force of 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 darkness. There's spiritual forces of darkness in the world. there There are actually forces at work in this world that hate God, and they hate you and I as people made in God's image, and they work 24-7 around the clock to try and keep us from getting close to Christ, to prey on our personal and our cultural weaknesses and to exploit them. In his teaching on the devil, Jesus calls him the father of lies. I love how one commentator says, Jesus is essentially saying that when the devil lies, he's just speaking his native language. He actually says later in that teaching that the devil and his minions come like a thief who just wants to kill, steal, and destroy. These spiritual forces of darkness, they always promise us what they can't deliver. They always promise us what they can't deliver. They promise us the protection of cynicism that will be protecting our hearts, protecting our expectations but they actually lead us to a death of despair. They actually lead us to a, an emotional death of, of hard-heartedness and disconnection. They promise us power. They promise us power, but they actually leave us just feeling hollow and weak and anxious. They promise us that we can define our identity and that we can define freedom however we like, on our own terms, But ultimately, when we buy into that myth, we just find ourselves living a a hazy life with a hazy inner and outer world of chaos. The good news is that Jesus is not a ruler like the Herods of this world. Jesus is not a ruler like the Herods of this
0: world. Look with me at at verse 6, at Micah's prophecy here. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For
1: from you shall come a shepherd who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew doesn't quote the whole prophecy here, but in that same prophecy, Micah goes on to describe the shepherd king in this way. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Like a good shepherd, Jesus comes and he stands up to the Herods of this world. Jesus comes up and he, he stands up to the forces of darkness that try and keep us close from him, that try and keep us close from one another. Unlike Herod, He's he's not insecure, and he's not paranoid, but he leads his flock in the strength of his father. He leads in the strength of his father, and he protects them in his father's strength. Rather than spilling the blood of innocence to try and preserve his own life, Jesus is actually willing to spill out and shed his own blood on the cross to lay his life down for his flock, for his sheep. He allows his life to be taken. He allows his blood to be spilled out on a Roman cross so that guilty people like us can be drawn into the power and healing presence of God, that we can be rescued from the, the forces and powers of darkness that have a grip on us, on our lives, on our culture. So at this point, I just kind of want to stop for a second in the sermon. I just want to, I want to take a moment to pray for the spiritual forces of darkness that
0: have a grip on some of us in this room. Lord, I pray
1: even now for anyone in this room who feels like they're in bondage to a spirit of cynicism.
0: Like there's uh, sort of this this
1: darkness and this uh, resistance that hangs over their minds and over their hearts. They've been hurt too many times. They've made a promise that it's never going to happen again. But Lord, this cynicism is actually keeping them from experiencing your love, from experiencing your presence, and from connecting with others in a healthy and
0: healing way. I pray, Lord, that you would break that that force of darkness, holding captive. I pray, Lord, for
1: those of us who are, are tempted to believe the myth that We can do whatever we want as long as it hurts no one else. And rather than leading us to a place of healing and rather than leading us to a place of joy, it's actually left us feeling hollow and empty and used. I pray, Lord, that even now you would, through the power of your cross, break the the power of that cultural myth, that force of darkness that holds minds captive. We pray, Lord, that anyone who just Feels a general sense of, of like an oppressive darkness, an oppressive spiritual force that wants to keep them from experiencing the fullness of your joy, that wants to keep them from, uh, coming into the Christian community and sharing their burdens and their struggles with others. I pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit and that you would scatter that darkness from their minds and from their hearts, that you would scatter that force of darkness,
0: even as, even as I'm praying now, Lord. Jesus, we ask you to
1: come by the power of your cross, break all of these, these forces of darkness that hold us captive, that want to keep us from being drawn closer into the light of your
0: presence, into the full life you have for us. Amen. Jesus comes to rescue us
1: out of a, out of a hazy life of bondage and isolation. What he wants to do is he wants to, like a shepherd, lead us into the joy of his presence. He wants to lead us into the joy and peace of his presence. So Look what what happens to these gray world seekers when they get to see Jesus. Look with me at verses 9 to 11. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold... I believe that today, God, like the wise men, he wants to lead us to the place where there is the fullness of his own presence. Just like he he moved that star miraculously to rest right over the place where Christ was, I think that God wants to cut through the haze of our life and lead each of us personally to the presence of God, to the fullness of God's presence with us in Jesus Christ. And this child... In the person of Jesus, God offers all that He is and all that He has to us fully and completely, in a way that's that's tangible, in a way that's personal. And He invites us to participate in what Martin Luther calls the joyous exchange. The joyous exchange, where we can come to Him with all of our stuff, with all of our haze, with all of our doubt, with all of our sin and our darkness, and we can actually take all of our life, all of its darkness and its and its good parts as well, and we can bestow them on him. And he takes all that he is and all that he has, all of his righteousness, all of his peace, all of his freedom, all of his love, and he pours it into us. Where our total self-offering meets the total self-offering of God is a place of overwhelming joy. Where our total self-offering meets the total self-offering of God Is a place of overwhelming joy. And it unleashes a power of
0: transformation, truly.
1: I love this image of them falling down, prostrate before Jesus. And I love that just a couple weeks ago, too, we sort of got to see this image for ourselves that Susan was ordained. And she fell down and, 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 and laid prostrate before Jesus as a sign of her, her laying her life down, of her full and total devotion to Jesus and to his mission. Like Susan, these wise men, they fell prostrate and they, they laid their, their entire life down before Jesus. They, they, they laid down everything that would potentially keep him from their presence and they devoted everything that they had to his service. They gave him a whole life offering, not just of their honor and of their adoration, but also of their material goods. They presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They didn't just bring, a, this wasn't like a $2 bottle of Aldi wine, right? That we pick up and bring to a, to a housewarming party, hope that no one knows that it was $2. You know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these were expensive, like empty your pockets, drain your bank account gifts. This was a blood and life offering. It was an expensive gift. The kind of gifts that you only bestow on people who are most worthy of them. We all know gifts like that. The kind of gifts that you save up for and that you only really bestow on people who are most worthy to receive them. True worship is our total life offering to God. Loving God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, it's a living sacrifice. And wherever the life offering of God meets our own life offering, unimaginable joy, unimaginable power are unleashed. I want you to imagine with me, like, what would it be like if we as individuals and if we as a community asked ourselves, what would it look like for me to get as low before Jesus? to get us prostrate before Jesus, as Susan was and as these wise men were, to so like lay down and be willing to give up to the Lord that much, to offer it up to him joyfully,
0: what would it look like for us?
1: When the light of Christ cuts through our haze, when we catch just even a glimpse of the glory of God in the, in the heart of his Father, how can we not just like fall down and worship him? How can we not open up our treasures? How can we not open up our hearts? How can we not give him our desires and our affections, our minds, our body, our resources, and our time, our entire life? This epiphany, I would encourage you to, to take some time to talk to the Lord, to talk with friends, to journal and reflect. Ask yourself What would it look like for me to get that prostrate before Jesus? What would it look like for me to lay down
0: that much before Jesus? So I can receive even more of all that He is and all that He wants to offer me and to give me. Maybe you're, you're here today and you're, you're just stuck in this, this, um, self-medicating behavior. And it's, it's not healthy and it's not good. Let the light of Christ cut through that haze. Talk to a prayer minister. Take the
1: next steps that you need to get free from that. See healing. Maybe you're here and you just feel like you've been stuck in this, this like haze of doubt. I would encourage you to tell an Emmanuel leader, invite them to journey with you through those doubts or even receive Prayer for those doubts and anointing for those doubts as just a way of offering them up to God, not like hoping that they'll be reconciled in that moment, but as a way of offering them up to the Lord and welcoming Him into those doubts. And my hope and my prayer for us is that as the light of Christ does cut through our haze, this epiphany, each of us will be drawn closer to the personal power. and and healing presence of Jesus. That we'll accept the invitation to draw close to God and to dwell. And that in doing so, we'll each experience the overwhelming joy of great and true worship. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen.